0: Welcome to Cinemakers, Amy Hackerling. This is episode 55, Red Oaks, from 2014 through 2017. I'm Joey <laughs> I'm Mike Manzi.
1: And I'm Carrie Gale-Oregan.
0: And I have to apologize to all of you, I have a cold, so you could probably hear that. Well, I hope you feel better, boy chick. <laughs> well, oh, so <laughs> Nash is the best part. So Red Oaks, Amy Hackerling directed six episodes, two in each of the three seasons two in the first, two in the second, two in the third. I realized when I was sort of thinking about the episodes on a high level, her two in the first season, I think, are maybe the two most important in the first season. And then in the second and third seasons, they're just sort of whatever episodes. But I realized that's because the show just kind of becomes, at least in my opinion, kind of whatever. Like, I love the first season. I think there's a magic to them being at the Red Oaks Country Club. And I think once the show gets away from that and just begins following the characters, to me, it becomes less interesting. It sort of becomes less special and less of what I was enjoying. But before we dive into her specific episodes, I was wondering what you two thought of the show as a whole, uh, either season by season or on a, uh, overall or however you want to answer the question.
1: Well, so I actually really love this show. This is the third time that I saw these episodes in particular because I've watched it all the way through twice. I really like it probably because it's so familiar to me, be, like taking place in northern New Jersey and how it's about this weird kind of proximity to wealth that you have if you... Live in that area, but aren't necessarily one of the rich people. You wind up working for them and getting access to all sorts of weird things. And I just think everyone's great on it. It's written really well. I don't love that the female characters don't get a ton of play, although in the episodes that we watched specifically for this podcast, they do, which is nice. And I think that they're actually only watching. The six episodes kind of back-to-back-to-back are kind of almost like a movie. Like, it kind of has this arc to it overall, I think, that, like, not a great movie. There's a lot missing. But, you know, like, one of those movies that, like, show, like, three distinct points in time. I like it. Do you like
0: any season more than the rest or you sort of think of it all? Cuz it's not there's not a ton of this. I mean there's 24 episodes, there 26 episodes and you know, you could probably watch it all in about 11 or 12 hours.
1: Uh you can. I did that recently by accident when I was working on something. <laughs> so, yeah
0: whoops but i mean do you like the early stuff better or do you like it all about the same or like where does it fall because i think there's a real distinction for me early on and we'll get to this later when when they leave the the country club to go to new york i was like oh this is right in amy, amy Hackerling's wheelhouse we've talked about this and then the more time they spent there i was like oh like this doesn't feel like a fun excursion it feels like a different show
1: yeah no i think that's that's accurate the first couple seasons are better because they do exist in that like small little world and but on the other hand I think that there are some like character arcs that either continue into the third season or like pay off in the third season that I really enjoy like I think that Judy who plays the main character's mom played by Jennifer Grey who is amazing and I just want her to have her own spinoff from this show because her character goes from being this housewife in the first season who feels very like she says herself she's invisible whatever to over the course of these three seasons uh, realizing that she's into women and maybe a little bit gay or maybe a lot gay and she gets divorced from her husband and she goes out on her own and by the time the third season rolls around she is like this big shot real estate agent who's like celebrating a million dollars in sales and so it was really great to kind of see her arc over those three seasons, even if the third season gets a little scattershot.
0: Refresh my memory, Kara, but in the pilot, isn't there like a kind of a throwaway line about the baby, I'm going to call her baby, about the mom uh, that like she's into women? It's it's sort of established from the beginning, right?
1: Well, yeah. the, The very first scene of the very first episode is him playing tennis with his dad and his dad starts having a heart attack and he's like laying there on the ground and like saying all these stream of consciousness consciousness things in case he doesn't get a chance to like if he's dying like he wants to get this stuff out there and one of the things that he says is like and i think your mom likes women or something like that or is a little bit gay and then you see that kind of play out over the course of the next three
0: seasons now mike where do you fall on the red oaks if kara is on the most he likes all of it and i'm on the really likes part of it but doesn't really care for a lot of it where do you fall on that sort of spectrum or are you beyond me like you you enjoyed none of this are you a grinch for red oaks
2: Oh, I'm certainly not a Grinch by any means. Uh, I, I think I'm closer to, to Kara's side of the uh, of the tennis court there. I, I quite enjoyed this very much, like coming from the area, northern New Jersey.
1: Do you think that Joey doesn't like it as much because he's not from northern New Jersey? He's from central New Jersey.
2: <laughs> I'm just glad that you
0: acknowledge that I, Of that course, course it exists. exists. So many people do not. It's what
1: keeps us separated from <laughs> the Southland. Yeah.
2: We're, we're the buffer between the water and the water. Mm-hmm. I thought it did a good job of being an 80s piece without being like a super nostalgia kind of thing. Like, it, that didn't bother me. It felt like Caddyshack, the show, to me in a lot of ways at first, but tennis instead of golf. So I really do like the stuff, the settings of uh, Red Oaks Country Club and everything going on around there. I think. Yeah, I'm mostly into the first season and a half, two seasons. I think I agree when it starts to follow the characters out of the club, it's it's not that I don't like where those journeys lead. I think for me, the problem is I I don't really like David all that much, the main character.
1: Yeah, he kind of sucks.
2: Yeah, he's not my favorite. Like, I'm really into Missy and Wheeler. Like, that's the show. Like, I think they're great. I love you know, Judy and Sam and everything that happens to them. Uh, I mean, I really like this cast. Nash is terrific. Paul Reiser's great in this. So, I was really digging it. I was really loving the vibe. It was giving me a lot of 80s sort of feels but like not overkilling it or anything. You know, maybe I think once the show moved to New York and got out of the club, it sort of became, like you said, Joey, sort of another show. It, It evolves you know, maybe it should have changed the name or something. Or it feels like a spin-off almost in the third season. But but overall, I was like pretty impressed with this. You know, we're very familiar with Soderbergh, Joey, and he, he is all over this show. And one of the creators, uh, Gregory Jacobs, has also been a producer for a ton of Soderbergh material that we've covered and, you know, lots of other great things too. So there's a lot of great stuff behind the scenes. David Gordon Green is involved. You know, he directed Joe, starring Cage, one of Cage's best performances. Well, Soderbergh also produced the show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I mean it's there's a lot of good talent behind it and I think it shines through. Maybe part of the issue is that it was on Amazon. I think this is this and The Tick are the only two shows I've watched on Amazon in their entirety and like I just, you know, it's hard for me to Find time to watch shows in general because there's just so many and stuff. But I would definitely recommend this one. I mean, we're going to get into it, of course. But for me, just right off the bat, what was weird is that I'm surprised that Heckling like wasn't involved more in this, that she only directed six episodes because it felt like her sensibilities from the start. Like it started off feeling a lot like Clueless. It ends up feeling a lot like Fast Times. Like there's a lot of that stuff going on. So I understand, you know, why she's involved. And I definitely feel like her style and, and, uh, And her view and everything fit in perfectly with this material. I'm glad I finally got a chance to watch this show. I had been told to watch it several times. Uh, Yeah, so um, I liked
0: it. On the one hand, on the glass half empty thing, you could say that she wasn't involved in a lot of it, but on the glass half full, she did direct like almost a quarter of the episodes. There's only like three or four directors. Yeah,
1: it seems like they like assigned everyone like a few like episode arcs because like the they're like back-to-back people like, got to direct instead of random
0: yeah so there's like Hal Hartley who did a bunch and David Gordon Green did a bunch and she did a bunch and maybe a couple other people
1: yeah Andrew Fleming who who wrote and directed both The Craft and Dick I was excited to see his Name pop up there too?
0: Yeah. The show got to the point where it felt to me like the the easiest way I can describe it is like what all Showtime shows become in seasons five through eight, where they're like, oh, we love these characters so much. We don't have a reason. It is almost the exact definition of jumping the shark, which, you know, if you don't know, comes from Happy Days, where Fonzie actually jumped over a shark and people were like, oh, this is not the show that it was at one point. And so the show, the idea for the show is like, let's follow these characters around at a country club and then as soon as you realize oh they're not going back there they're not going to all be back there it's a different show which is not bad but i think the show that i fell in love with was that first season so like if i watch this again i think i might just watch the first season and then sort of be done with it like i like where characters go like i like that misty and wheeler get together in the end that he wins out because he is such a good pure soul. Like, I like that he gets the girl of his dreams and that she realizes that there's more to life than just looks. But I kind of like the idea of the first season more. Even though I don't dislike the second and third, it just feels like a different show that wasn't why I loved the first season.
2: Yeah, I hear you too. And I think it felt a little truncated for me as well. Like it felt like, uh, I know there's short seasons and everything, but it felt like episodes were kind of missing to me. Like there could have been more episodes per season or like certain episodes seemed to feel like scenes were missing or, you know, I felt like I missed something between scenes here and there from time to time and stuff so like I, I also just like by its structure it felt like it was rushing a little bit to me through things and that I wish it kind of could have taken its time a little bit more but I don't know if you guys got a sense of that at all that could strictly just be from me but where I'm going with that is like I just would have loved to have seen maybe more from certain characters and less focus on others you know like I, I love how much they focus on Nash but I would have liked to have seen more of like uh, where Barry and Karen Aaron ended up, you know, in like season three, like we get little, like they pop in. They, you know they end up married that whole thing but like i i don't know i really enjoyed Karen line she sort of just like drifted into the background sky also disappears paul reiser gets through that's a very interesting arc with his character Getty who he plays for of like a wolf of wall Street type guy but yeah just overall i i kind of maybe i just wanted a little more show to be honest with you
1: yeah um i felt it especially in these heckerling episodes whenever there was like a montage um there because there are like a few great ones um, especially like right before they're setting yep. up for the fourth july party and i was like oh no it's too short like it just was like here's a taste and now it's over because this episode is only 24 minutes or whatever and that was where i was really like oh no just give me more montages
0: yeah you know, you, you said, Mike, that, that Getty reminds you that Paul Reiser plays... I think he's he's incredible. Like, he and Richard Cotton are so goddamn good on the show. The thing, like, well, to, to sort of detour from my own point for a second, like, Richard Cotton, like, I love him as the sad, vulnerable man whose life is falling apart. He's trying to make sense of it. I don't really care that he opens a sandwich shop. Like, that just feels like too much. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need to see that. I thought it was
2: interesting his boss was an interesting character, right? Because, like, I thought that was pretty well represented because you know he's he has the crutches but they're never mentioned whatsoever and he's just you know
1: he's just a normal character like he just it's the same thing as like advice that's given to writers like hey take some of your background character guys and make them women or make them a different race and it like doesn't change anything and it's fine and then you just have a more diverse representation so it's cool that they do that although I don't think that that actor is actually disabled in real life I tried to find out couldn't so
0: who knows I mean, you could also make your star that way. It's a sort of detour once again, but like one of my favorite movies from last year was this movie called Hard Speed Loud, where the main character is a uh, black lesbian woman And, like, none of that matters to the story. Like, she's just a girl coming of age and, like, trying to go off to school. And, like, the fact that she's black or that she, you know, likes girls, like, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just representation and, like, an actual character. So I agree wholeheartedly. Make more people not straight white dudes. Although, the straight white dudes in this one, at least the older generation, Getty and Richard Kind, so great. Uh, David, you know, maybe make him literally anybody else because... Well,
1: so the thing that where I get kind of confused about why I like this show so much is because it is very much from, like, even though we follow some of the female characters on their own journeys, it's still very much from a male point of view, and the men are still very much the stars and the centers of this show. David, in particular, revolves entirely around him. And uh, a lot of the female characters, I think Sky, in particular, is the one that annoys me the most because she's so underdeveloped and has some very like distinct character traits that maybe are a little bit too much like me, and I also don't like that. But... <laughs> Like, the fact that she remains this kind of manic pixie dream girl and doesn't really get any farther, I don't know, I I just always found that somewhat perplexing because I'm like, but I don't understand why I'm still enjoying this this much if it's, you know, such a, like, fixed perspective.
0: Well, I think there is, and I just realized this now, that there's sort of, and it's not great for the overall representation of the women, but there's kind of like the, you know, like his summer crush each year, and there's a different girl each season. Like there's Karen, and then there's Sky, and then there's a girl whose name I don't know, the one who works with him. I call her Wardrobe Cutie. I don't know her name either, but she's cute. She is, like, she's definitely the the pure, I mean, I mean Karen is pure of heart, uh, even though she loves Barry, who is... The worst.
1: But even that guy is great. Like, how do I enjoy that so much? I don't understand.
0: I don't know. Because he's so committed to what he is. But I feel like each season, there's just like a, oh, this is the girl that David is smitten with for these six or 10 episodes. You know what I mean? Like, it's like having a girlfriend every year in college or like a a different summer crush every year. Like, that's not great. Like, I'd rather see Karen continue through to season three. But at the same time, you then like run into like what I was saying before about the Showtime shows. Like, all of a sudden you're like weed season seven and like Doug is just hanging around because like we don't want to get rid of Kevin Nealon and like we don't want to get rid of him, but like we don't have anything for him to do. So he's just like sitting around smoking weed. It's just like, well, I, I think at some point you kind of have to cut bait, Mike. And I think like, I agree with both things you're saying, like, I wish that there was, you know, more like focus paid to other people. But at the same time, like, you kind of got to just like pick and choose your battles, right? And like, she's not ultimately important because like, because this is all through as you've been as you've both been saying through David's perspective and like Karen's influence on his life is done, right? So like, she sort of run her course. And, you know, she can have a great life, which he seems to have, like, after he fixes her wedding, basically, which is sort of problematic, maybe. But, like, after he fixes her wedding, you know, she's like, oh, I'm, I'm good now. And, like, that's sort of, like, the, the, the kiss goodbye, and now they're good.
2: Yeah, I like how he's able to remain friends with Karen in that. I just wish that, she was getting in and out of jams more and, like, part of the crew, I guess. But I think, like, the show understood, like, because Sky, Sky isn't really in season three. She's in, like, one scene or something, right? So, like, the show understood, like, she kind of, like, when certain characters are sort of, like, run their course. Because she also, it, it, that's an interesting... Situation because you know there's that whole power play between her dad and David. Like David is in love with her and her dad hates David, but it needs his help. And there's this weird sort of like you know trying to groom him situation, and it's all very sort of difficult to navigate. And so there's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on there. And I think right once that sort of plays out and the, her dad goes to jail, I guess when she goes to Paris and comes back, then you know it's over. And so season three, yeah, it's the focus is on other things. But I don't know. I I wonder at points, you know, you know, why do I like this, even if I don't like this or that about it? And I think about that with other shows that I like so much and rewatch things, and it's like, oh, I hate this about it, but I still love this in in its totality, like in full. Maybe we're not supposed to like David. Like maybe that's part of it. That's the point. Is like when we look back on these times and these people and these situations, like yeah, like they're not doing the right thing. This isn't good. They're not exactly good people through and through and the facade is there because there's a thing sort of like with Nash it's the opposite like at first I was like oh this guy is kind of like a jerk like he's all like this arrogant kind of asshole kind of thing but actually he turns out to be like a really sweet nice caring kind of guy who really tries to help people out and stuff so like I don't know I wonder sometimes like if it's trying to manipulate me that way.
1: My other big complaint about this show is that no one is appropriately sweaty. It's summer in New Jersey.
0: And they're all exercising all the time.
1: Yeah. But everyone is like not shiny. And I don't understand why. There's that episode when they're uh, when David and Skye are uh, in the city. She is wearing opaque black tights and a jacket. And it's summer. And it's so hot.
0: Uh the drug dealer is sweaty a lot and Wheeler is sweaty sometimes but I feel like that's more maybe like the actor actually being sweaty as opposed to the character being sweaty.
1: Yeah. Yeah, those two are appropriately sweaty.
0: One thing, this this goes back to the point I started to make eight minutes ago before I derailed myself. You said that Getty reminds you of Wolf of Wall Street, so he and Mrs. Getty, played by Gina Gershon, and Sky reminded me so much. Of, it started with Sky, then I was like, wait a minute, this whole family reminded me a lot of Tony Carmella and Meadow because of the criminal enterprise, the North Jersey setting, but just like Sky and Meadow are both like whiny entitled girls i think and then i feel like mrs getty and carmella are both like first seen as like the trophy wife but then have much more complicated stories than you might think and then you know getty and tony are both sort of in a way uh public figures that are also criminal Leaders, in a way, it's obviously not as about crime as The Sopranos is, but the first season does end with Getty getting arrested for uh, insider trading and all this different stuff. So I was sort of surprised, and maybe that's just North Jersey in the 80s, but or the 90s or whatever. But you know, uh, that 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 parallel really struck me while watching.
2: Well, I think it's also partially part of the whole underlying thing about the wealth going on and 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 all that and you know where it comes from and who has it and what that because like getty's even like oh i'm president of the country club you know like he has to be like it just seems like he's not just accumulating wealth but power and all this other kind of stuff it just made me wonder like like wealthy people like and how they got their wealth i just thought that was an interesting sort of aspect of the show Let's talk about now, now that we've sort of talked about the show as a whole, let's talk about Amy Hackerling's
0: episodes specifically. Before we get there, though, I want to say, these are things that I noticed about the show that, like, feel like we talked about how it fits in with her sensibilities, but obviously the 80s, obviously great clothes, great soundtracks. Everybody kind of just wants to get laid. There's a lot of dream sequences and montages. If
1: I may, perhaps the ultimate Hackerling altered state sequence in
0: Body Swap. Which I, I love and also have problems with, which we will get to. They also, this is not uh, uh, one of the episodes that she directed, but they used the bridge and tunnel, like Sky says that David's a bridge and tunnel kid. And I was like, oh shit, we talked about that a Loser, which I'd never heard of before we did this podcast, and now I've heard twice for this podcast.
1: And which actually turns out to be uh, something of a theme in her later TV work. So I actually spent the weekend watching almost all of the TV episodes that she directed which included two episodes of Gossip Girl and one two three episodes of a show called the Carrie Diaries
2: Sex in the city prequel
1: yeah which it turns out is a really great show and I might actually go back and watch the Carrie Diaries it was uh, of all of the TV that I watched this weekend probably some of the best but in one of the episodes of Gossip Girl they like, go to a bar downtown to escape one of their ex-boyfriends who's stalking them. And the character says, like, oh, I've never been so excited to be surrounded by so many bridge and tunnel types. And there's a lot of, like, bridge and tunnel about the Carrie Diaries, too. So, yeah.
0: Huh. Wow. And also, just while it's on my mind, before we get the Amy Heckling's episodes, Mike, I caught at least three Tom Cruise references, because uh, it's on the brain. Number one, Wheeler, I can't go to military school. Did you see Taps? Those guys are psychos, which we just covered caught that they also talked about top gun like in the same episode they talked about top gun and then later wheeler says something i think it was wheeler who said something like i don't exactly look like val kilmer which is clearly still i mean 80s as a whole but also probably top gun so i was like oh shit boy do we have a podcast for you television show
2: i thought it was funny at one point where they go to see aliens and the guy makes a reference to paul Reiser's character from the movie and my brain almost snapped for a second but
0: Okay, so Body Swap, Season 1, Episode 7. This is very much Amy Hackerling. This is where David and his father swap bodies.
1: And they're so good at being each other.
0: My, my one friend when I was talking to my my fantasy baseball league take a drink about the show because a handful of them had seen it already my one friend said that after that happened and then they swapped back they never stopped seeing David as Richard Kind <laughs> so I was like oh I kind of wish that I watched the show like that that always just has two Richard Kind's on screen I love this episode because of their their, their performances I hate that the show never attributes like they, they just forget everything and it's never reminded of again even though in this world in the next episode David goes and apologize to this guy like you know if i if, if i was weird yesterday i just want to let you know that i was sick i was on you know, medication or whatever i love that this exists at this like very weird thing that does not have anything to do with the rest of the show happens and then it's all just for naught, really so like that bothers me
1: oh you think it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the show that's interesting because i to me like so much of this show especially leading up to that episode is about this like generational divide and this conflict between david and his parents like particularly his father and like them having a hard time finding empathy for anyone other than themselves and I think that that experience kind of opens them up a little bit to that and you see it in the rest of the series even though they never actually like acknowledge it
2: yeah like I'm torn on this episode really because my main concern with it was it just comes out of nowhere like there's no there's no precedent set for anything getting this over the top crazy and wacky except for we're in the 80s and there were a lot of body swap movies in the 80s there were a lot of Freaky Friday remakes and there was like father like son and vice versa and all kinds of shit so like i'm okay with it in a whole because i like what what you're saying about it Kara. like i i like i really love the therapy scene where david is his father in therapy with his mother it's just insane because later in i think like season three we get a scene where david's in therapy with his mother when she's coming out to him um and he's like can totally handle it and stuff so I I do feel like there's repercussions to the episodes that stick but I, I'm also frustrated that there's no direct reference to this happening like even between Sam and Dave I just wish like there was at least one moment in another scene where they were like you know when we swap <laughs> bodies I realized this or what or something or anything but and and so the, those are that's kind of was mm-hmm. what my issue with that episode
0: was It just become, yeah it becomes like a latent thing that they understand about each other but like what I loved about the start of this episode was that there was finally conflict. Like the first six episodes of the show, there was this tension brewing that, like, Sam wants his son to follow him in for the and become an accountant.
1: More accountants, even though this didn't come from Heckling's brain.
0: Yep. And wants David to follow in his footsteps, go to school for accounting. David clearly hates it, uh, wants to pursue a f- uh, career in filmmaking, uh, you know, s- uh, study filmmaking. His mom senses that something's amiss, but, like, there's all this, like, bubbling tension. And I loved that the first episode that we were focusing on specifically for the show was the one where, like, the the sort of the tension snapped, right? And they were, like, fighting. They were they were yelling at each other about, like, I don't want to do this. Well, I want you to have a career, blah, 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 blah. I love that, like, this is a big episode. In my mind, it's like, this is a big episode. Let's give it to Amy. Let's let her helm this one. And then we have the body swap. I'm like, oh, this is so weird. And then they swap back at the end. they just sort of like, oh. And like, I, I do agree that it is important in that they are able to understand where one another is coming from but the fact that they don't remember anything and maybe it's just like somewhere in their dna they're like i understand my dad cuz like from then on they are the kind of like oh it's father's day like you want to rent a you want to go see a movie and drink some beers or whatever like they become pals again but like i just i just wish that there was even if it was just them like i wish that there was some like more cuz if you're going to get this weird continue the weirdness <laughs> i think
2: sure no right go do more crazy episodes later in the show that they, and they don't. Yeah. And I almost feel like they might've been able to get to the same conclusion another way, um, but maybe just didn't want to, like couldn't help themselves or just said like, no, like, like we want to pay homage, you know, to this particular type of film while telling this story. And I, you know, there is, you know, that works. It's okay. But it also, you know, causes a few issues as well, unfortunately. So, like it's not, it's not super clean.
0: I feel like if you're going to do, Like, pay homage to this kind of movie or this kind of, like, type of movie or these tropes or whatever. Like, do that once per season. Yeah, make it consistent. In the early seasons community, like the first three seasons, there was always like the paintball episode. You know what I mean? Like it was like a show, it was like a, an episode that had nothing to do really with like, like it made no sense within the world of the show, but it also made perfect sense within the world of the show. But like you knew each year, like when you got to that, be like, oh, this is the episode where blank, where like they do the body swap or they do
2: whatever other 80s, you know, tropes or whatever. Yeah, because I feel like it still works. It Like it still works enough, right? Like because the show starts sort of cre- crazy, wild, and out of control, like I said earlier, like, it reminded me of Caddyshack a lot. And it starts on that level. Like, there's a certain energy here where, like, yeah, anything can happen. This is going to get pretty crazy. Like, I expect shit to go wild and nuts. And, you know, once I settled, once the episode sort of, like, settled in and everything i was i was into it i was buying it i was feeling it and stuff but i was also not happy that we didn't get like not another body swap episode obviously but like any like another theme episode right
0: yeah like i love the episode as it is but i just i like it less within the scope of the entire show i guess but yeah, I mean, I still, I still liked it. I also loved in this episode, there's another, I think this, I don't know if this is the one you were talking about earlier, Kara, but there's the montage of Baby, of Jennifer Grey getting ready while the bo- the boys are hunting for whiskey, like they're looking for that specific bottle. That sort of reminded me of Look Who's Talking, where Kirstie Alley is getting ready. Happy belated birthday, Kirstie Alley, 68 years old, still probably looking great. Don't know what you look like in 2019, but shout out, Kirstie Alley. But there was that episode, that we, we loved that one where like she's getting ready and she's getting ready for the date. And here it sort of reminded me of that, of, you know, another 80s montage of... Of, uh, an attractive woman getting ready for a night of sort of unexpected or much needed passion in a way.
1: One of the other episodes that was not directed by Heckerling, those same therapists give Richard Kind and, damn it, now you have my brain also calling her baby. Anyway, Jennifer Grey, where the therapist...
0: What's Richard Kind's character's name from Inside Out? Take her to the moon for me. Bing bong. Bing bong. Yeah, so bing bong and baby. That's what we can call them Kara. Bing bong and baby.
1: So there is that episode where bing bong and baby get prescribed MDMA or ecstasy and they go home and they take it and then they get, you know, weird. That's also a
0: really great episode. <laughs> It was one of those episodes where, like, I, I hate movies and TV shows where, like, I guess this is, like, a lot of things where good intentions get spoiled. Like, because I really, for whatever reason, I wanted David and Karen to work because I liked Karen, I think, right? And so it's clear that they're on the rocks and that she's, you know, lusting for Barry or, you know, at least entertaining the notion that, that Barry's maybe the right guy for her because David can't do things right. He's just a kid. And, like, he does this thing where maybe it's not what Barry would have done. But he, you know, has forethought. He buys her. He, he makes the chocolate dip strawberry gets the champagne does all the rose petals all this different stuff and then you know after this shitty night where he doesn't make a reservation gets home and it's like this is gonna win it over it's just it's all for naught and i just felt so bad not really for him but for karen on her birthday and i was like that just that hurt me that i enjoyed watching bing bong and baby you know in their underwear just like you know getting weird with the universe but i felt like karen you know that she could have had a special night but they had to you know get high and ruin it but i don't know that's just my weird
2: brain
1: well, welcome to dating men.
2: But you know what I thought was an interesting part of the body swap episode was um, at the end when Sky and Karen finally meet. I was like, oh, cool. This is this is interesting. Like that's cool. I'm I'm glad we. Like, we get places in there in that episode that, you know, mean things. So, like, that's good. Like, there are some, some good moments that stick.
0: I like that, yeah, because David in Sam's body is like, there's one thing, don't talk to a girl named Sky. And then he has this whole conversation. he's just like, oh, I'm, I'm Sky. He's like, oh, no. Like, I did the one thing I wasn't supposed to do, but that was great. I also love just his, like, absolute obsession and adoration of fried food like i can't eat this anymore but like oh food is so good just eating like the worst food in the world uh so we follow up body swap with after hours which is a an episode that follows the uh, the movie format i think right called after hours and what excited me about this one is that this is our first trip to new york city which we've talked about a bunch that's where amy heckerling is from this is sort of her bread and butter and again in my head i was like oh cool like this is what she's good at let's give her this episode
1: did you guys see the background dicks
2: Oh yeah, the red, white and blue one.
1: Yeah, there I noticed some extra dicks this time that I had not seen. Previously there's another like art installation that's just
0: a blender that has
1: dildos in it and I
0: well, that. what I noticed about the dicks was that, just like in a lot of her other things, like Fast Times and Clueless, there's a cut that goes from the red, white, and blue dick to an ice cream cone. I was like, once again, food as phallus, so... So the
1: ice cream place that Misty brings Wheeler to on their date that she doesn't realize is a date until uh, it's too late, that's King Cone. That's right across the street from my old primary care provider's office. Oh! I have this weird, like, superpower of, like, reverse location scouting when I'm watching things, which has gotten intense. Now that they're shooting so many things around where I live, but this show in particular, I'm like, oh, that's that place. And that place in that place it's
0: exciting yeah no one really shoots things around here where i live but when i when i watch movies set in austin even though i was only there for two years like there's one scene and i don't know if either of you listen to our boyfriend material episode of song to song the terrence malick but there's one scene where like one of the characters i think it might have been gosling pulls off the highway into like this parking lot just gets out of his car and like yells because it's a terrence malick movie and everybody's angsty and i was like i know the parking lot like i've gotten fast food in that parking lot like there's like a sears or something not sears but like a like a, a big department store there and like there's a fast food place like i was like, I know that weird parking lot so it's a, it, it is a weird sort of sense of like not deja vu but like oh I know that place it's very cool there's also a great double date across space and time sort of and this is also a big episode in that this is where I wrote that it's all happening where uh, Misty and Wheeler sort of like that they kind of realize I think that Misty kind of realizes that maybe is more here and this is where Sky and David uh, get together only to break up in the next episode only to get back together in the 10th episode which has again like the the love that I have for the first season where the final line of the first you <laughs> season is no come find me in Paris and I was like oh I love that and then it's all sort of downhill in my eyes a little bit from there but this is all where where things start happening like it feels like so much of this of the show not really in a bad way was kind of treading water and then we get the conflict in the last one and here we get like the the relationships that start like bubbling up and I was like oh like this is again another important episode and I was so glad that she was the one who got to direct it
1: yeah and that scene where David asks Guy out and she's like meet me out front in five minutes or whatever she gets up and starts walking away and then she stops and the camera is like on her her backside and then she like picks her wedgie in a sexy way and keeps walking and I just appreciated that so much because I feel like a male director could have shot Sky walking away in so many other ways that would have objectified her body in a different and more uh, voyeuristic way whereas this one kind of puts her in the driver's seat almost and she does a thing that's like not generally sexy but like does it in a sexy way and i just appreciated heckerling's eye on that
2: i like the moment when missy was trying to teach wheeler how to swim i thought that was pretty cute and um i don't know there was something about that just like
1: it's so intimate yeah
2: yeah and The trust there and everything, and yeah, and everyone, and he's so unguarded at that moment, whereas usually he just seems to be so confident and. This is girl of his dreams, and she's starting to think, like, maybe this guy's more than just, you know, a pothead, and he turns out to be, which is interesting. But yeah, that was, that was a really nice moment, too, that um, I thought you did a great job of sort of just bringing out, like, the tenderness there. Oh, one thing you just reminded me of
0: in ways completely unrelated to what you were saying, can we talk for just for a second about how the pilot for this was clearly made for, like, HBO or Showtime, where, like, everyone got naked, like, Misty got naked, uh, like, she got topless, and, like, there was a lot more swearing, and there's like, there was nudity in ev- even in, like, the opening credits that went away. Like,
2: yeah, that's what I meant when I was saying it was like crazy and like a party from the start where like anything goes. And it's like, yeah, because Nash is having like a, a three way on the golf course, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a strip mini golf game, like on the course and stuff. It's crazy. And then there's the
0: thing where, like, you know, Wheeler and Misty go on the date, and he's like, let's do something crazy or whatever, and she, like, takes her shirt off and jumps in the water, and then everyone else at Red Oaks, like, gets naked and jumps in the water too. I was like, what is this show? And then every, like, then, like, the, the second episode has the opening credits with, like, the, the topless scene from, like, the women's locker room or whatever cut, and I was like, oh, okay. Now, I mean, like, you can still show whatever you want on Amazon, but I guess it was Amazon was more like, let's, like, keep it more TV-14 with, like, some language, but it was such a, a weird, jarring jump from, you know, hard off to, like, kind of PG-13.
2: Amazon had such a crazy way of getting their shows done, right? Like, they would do pilot season, they would release, like, four or five new pilots, and then they'd let everybody watch them and vote on which ones they liked, and then they'd pick them up based on the viewers ratings of them and stuff. So like, I don't remember what else was out around this time. I think zombie land even had an, a pilot episode and it was just like miserable. It was, I mean, especially compared to that awesome movie, everything kind of shifts from pilot to episode two uh, a little bit, but possibly they were just trying to really get this, like get some numbers on this, this show, get this going.
0: And I feel like this is something that I've seen before where like the first episode is like more graphic and explicit than the rest of the show, but then it sort of, tampers down a bit the Amazon pilot season is weird like I've never watched any of those pilots because like I don't want to love and lose you know although I guess it is it's better than to never have loved at all or whatever but like I don't want to watch a show that I love the idea so much and then like see it never get me like that's sad to me but you know it is what it is Uh, Kara do you have anything else to say about After Hours?
1: Uh, She uses a bunch of archival footage of New York City which I don't think in most of the other city-centric episodes we really see much of because we saw that like some of that in Loser I think and some of that in
0: Vamps Um,
1: also some colored lighting that was good just little technical touches
0: The next episode that she directed was The Briss season 2 episode 4 which I don't have a lot of notes about oh I have so many notes about this one (laughs) the one thing I want to point out my one big thing was that she cast again I don't know do either of you know how much say she or any of the directors have who are sort of like more hired guns than like like there's in TV now there's like you know people like I think Jeremy Saulnier is now doing the entire new season of True Detective like True Detective has like a different director each season where I'm sure they work with the creator the showrunner to like pick their casting or whatever but like how much say does Amy Hackerling have in casting characters for her
2: episodes?
1: Oh, I have no idea. TV directing is very confusing. It's been explained to me on multiple occasions, and every time I just kind of gloss over. So I don't know.
2: Yeah, I've heard a bunch of different things. Like, sometimes I hear, like, what I'm hearing now on, like, The Mandalorian is, like, Jon Favreau and them, like, the producers like they chose their directors and they're sort of sitting in on the writing room and they have say and so like everyone knows what's going on with everyone else's episodes and then I hear stuff from like Kevin Smith when he talks in his podcast about directing like Supergirl and he's like that thing's just a well-oiled machine I'm basically there to say action and a little more than that and like give them some like cues and things but people know what they're doing and the show is just like on its own but I don't know this this to me kind of feels like since we were talking like you know, there's not that many directors and they're all sort of doing back-to-back episodes and stuff. I, I kind of get the feeling that like they all might have been more involved and a little more than usual, and this being like an Amazon project, and I don't know, it, it just feels to me like everybody can maybe stamp it a little more personally if they wanted to, like here and there, little touches and things like that, because they definitely do feel like episodes feel stylistically different here and there, you know, from time to time and stuff. And it's like, oh, okay, there's a flourish, or or there's a little touch or something they're able to sort of put in there. But generally on the whole, like it all, it all kind of falls under one same style. Like I don't feel like it's, no episode is radically different than the other. Right.
0: Like there's probably like a style guide or something. But the reason I was asking is because in both this episode and the next episode, she casts or we're introduced to characters who go beyond her episodes, but that are that sort of fit something that we've seen before where she casts comedians in parts. Like she casts Beth Stelling, who I love, as baby's love interest who is also a stand-up comedian in this world and then i'm assuming amy nacherling or whoever cast john hodgman as the guy who runs that like public access or whatever the music video plays
1: he's so good as that character
0: there was the one scene where he's walking around like with a slightly visible plumber's crack for the entire scene i was like i can't
2: get this out of my brain um while well, we're quickly on casting what blew my mind was the other half of perfect strangers Marklyn baker is in this and amy heckling you know dated bronson pinchot so like Oh. My mind snapped again.
0: Wow. And that's a sneak preview for the Leftovers podcast, which Kara and I will be doing at some point. But we had seen a lot where, especially in Loser, there was a lot of like comedian like David Spade was in that one scene or whatever. Like it seems like she casts comedians in like small parts in her movies, or, you know, famous funny people or whatever. And here it was just sort of like a pleasant surprise to see these two actors that I like as comedians being actors in this show and both being sort of that like mix between drama and comedy and, you know, sort of really nailing their roles.
1: I agree.
2: Yeah. I, I actually, you know, I, I think there's a lot of great performance. You know, we mentioned Richard Kind before too, but I think, I don't know this the guy who plays Wheeler, I've never seen him before. I I thought for sure he was uh, Jonah Hill's brother. I mean, I he, like looks just like him. Like it's crazy, but I think he's in Office Christmas Party as like an extra. I saw him in that, but he's great.
0: I know him from Californication. Uh, he plays oh. David Duchovny's son, and he is the worst. But he's also supposed to be the worst in that show, because like imagine David Duchovny who it looks like David Duchovny, and then for him to have this like son that looks like an axe, like kind of acts like this kid, but like like... like, not as smart and more annoying. And it's like, oh, like, that's the whole joke there. Like, he's a unattractive son of a a beautiful man or whatever. So, like, I didn't like him from that, so I was sort of put off by him here, but I I really loved him here, so, you know, he won me over.
1: And Paul Reiser, I mean, he was a stand-up comedian, right? Yeah, and he's just... His character in this, he nails it so well, and this is the, the episode where he brings David to New York City to have lunch with him and whatever, and there's this scene where they're sitting at this table in this, like, fancy business restaurant where they're, you know, all of these rich men doing rich man lunchtime things and it really reminded me of this scene from fast times at ridgemont high when ratner takes what's her name on that date and they're sitting in those chairs that are too big for them because david's wearing a suit jacket that's like just a little bit too big and he's like trying to cut this giant stake in a way that makes him really look like a child next to this man who is like this pinnacle of wealth and power Can one person
0: eat all this meat? Uh, One man can.
1: Yeah, and he was just sitting there like pointing out all the other rich guys and power dynamics and that sort of thing that I found really interesting.
0: You know what I loved about this episode, or at least in terms of her work, and I'm am sort of sad that we didn't get it, but I understand why. But obviously, with the with a, an episode named, like the Bris, there's going to be a Bris in it, and we have a baby on screen who has that done, who has his you know ritual circumcision done. But I was like, I wish we could hear this baby's thoughts. Like that's when I want Bruce Willis to pop in and just be like, what's going on here? And then like, oh my God, like you know that would have been. There's not that many babies in the show, and we get one in the Amy Heckerling episode, and I was like, come on, man, like give us a Bruce Willis, just have him drop in. So the scene before the the actual Briss itself.
1: He is visiting sky at work and talking to her co worker, who is also a filmmaker. And he asks her, like, what kind of movies she makes. And she rattles off a bunch of um, kind of like art house avant garde filmmakers. And then she asks him, like, what kind of stuff he does. And he's like, oh, I'm filming a Briss tomorrow. <laughs> and it cuts from them having that conversation to a shot of cold cuts on a table and, like, pans over the table to a bunch of tiny. Cocktail Wieners, and I thought that was that was great. And you also in that scene, she mixes in a lot of the viewfinder footage so you actually like see david's view through his camera of what's going on i liked that
2: oh yeah i liked when they did that quite often like when he was filming the episode where he was filming the sex tape for the couple like that was cool because you just see the like the terrible resolution of vhs for what it was (laughs) and it's funny because i was watching this off amazon in 4k but they would cut to that footage and it'd be like oh
0: any other thoughts about the bris before we get on to Independence Day?
1: I wrote down Gina Gershon's name in all caps because she's great in this show. And I just, I want her and Jennifer Grey's character to like have their own spinoff show. And fall in love with each other. Yes. Oh my God. Yes, please. For the love of God. Where they like have like a real estate firm. The two of them are sisters are doing it for
0: themselves. Yeah, just like Bound too. I don't think I know Gina Gershon from a lot of stuff, but I know her from Bound and she's great in Bound.
1: Oh, she's good and everything. Yeah, this is the one with the karaoke scene, right?
0: Independence Day or The Briss?
1: The Briss. I think that happens in The Briss.
2: Oh, when, yeah, when uh, Richard Kind gets stood up on a date and then um, Baby is there with like a bunch of her friends and she sees him up on stage.
1: And it's just, it's such a beautiful scene, I think, because he gets up on stage and he's like a little bit drunk and lonely and sad because he's gotten stood up and like as the music swells, kind of his mood turns around and he's up there really like giving it his all and having a lot of fun while she's standing there and like her mood is kind of diving in the other direction because he or she's seeing this person that she used to love like ostensibly having a good time without her. And I just found that to be like a really, really beautiful moment. And we don't get to see women think on screen a lot, you know? And I think that, well, with the exception of all of these movies that we've watched for the Cinemakers' Amy Heckerling, that's not something we get to see a lot. So I always appreciate it when somebody lets a camera linger on a woman's face for a while, especially if that woman is slightly older. We especially don't get to see that.
0: I also do want to point out before my uh, card gets revoked that I do know Gina Gershon, of course, from Face Off. So I want to make sure that I get that in there. I'm looking on uh, Letterboxd right now. She's in Blockers. Face Off, Pretty Paint, Killer Joe, Bound. Seen her all though. She's going to be in an upcoming Cruise Club Mike cocktail.
1: Oh, I love that one. It's a great movie.
0: So that's going to be a, uh, I think that's going to be a PSL of Hoffman reunion on our show. So go check out that podcast and go check out our podcast, where Kyle and Brian are just going to swing by. But the next episode that Amy Hackerling directed is season two, episode five, Independence Day, where we're introduced to John Hodgman. I said that there's a real focus on male genitalia. I don't remember how, but it's just a lot of dicks around, I would assume. And I also, I think we've talked about before about how Amy Heckerling is Jewish, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, I just wrote down the word Judaism and I don't remember why. (laughs) (laughs)
0: yes because my note was again this is sort of like i watched a lot of these in a very compressed amount of time but i wrote down that it makes sense that even though this whole show is very jewish like everything about the show and not in like a bad way it's just you know not like in a, a stereotypical way
1: No, just in like a this takes place in northern new jersey so you know yeah
0: yes and all the characters are Jewish. That it makes sense that even though this whole show is very Jewish, the real emphasis on faith in these episodes track with her history. Like it feels like there's like a, a weighty symbolism that, again, in my head, they're like, oh, let's give these episodes to her where there's like the Jewish ritual, or there's like you know, there's all this meaning and you know, symbol and custom ab- applied to things.
1: Oh right, because Nash decides that he's going to convert to Judaism, right? Mm.
0: Yes, for the widow Horowitz.
1: Also, Sky wears a really cute hat in this episode.
0: Her hair is just always so good. Did you like the wardrobe cutie's hat that she wore in a bunch of season three?
1: Yeah, it was fine. Although, I mean, for a wardrobe cutie, she could do better. But it's very, um, I just watched When Harry Met Sally on New Year's Eve, and Meg Ryan wears a similar hat in that movie. So it made me think of that.
0: My only other note for this show, or this episode, was that the ending emotional montage on fireworks makes this whole episode worth it. I felt like this wasn't like necessarily a great episode but I thought that again it's sort of this like moment where everyone is sort of dealing with these like deep thoughts spread across wherever they are but they're all able to see the fireworks and they're all just sort of thinking about it. and it's kind of in a way like a montage but not really it's just sort of cutting back and forth between a lot of different people and it's it's this sort of beautiful way to end the episode that kind of redeems a lot of what otherwise starts to become the episodes where like it's kind of just like things happen without really much of a through line other than like even is not good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that scene with the fireworks is really beautiful and I think is kind of similar to the karaoke scene in the previous episode. And like all this time we've been talking about Heckerling as a comedy director, but she really is so adept at directing drama too like there was an episode of the Carrie diaries that i watched um where one of the characters thinks that they might have aids and it's like a really like serious heavy episode and it's directed so like effortlessly and beautifully and uh i think she doesn't get enough uh respect in general but also specifically for that
2: yeah yeah and this this show doesn't really go too dramatic that often either or it doesn't get super heavy like that you know what I mean like it could maybe it could use a little more of that in some of the other episodes but it it is interesting how she's able to really bring that in and it feel natural like I remember there's in there a moment in Independence Day episode where Getty tells his wife he's gonna like reject the plea deal and like she goes from being so excited that there's a plea deal and then from him rejecting it to like calling him an asshole and like storming off and everything I was like wow like that just like the tone there just shifted on a dime like real seamlessly and everything. I was like not expecting it to go in that direction.
1: Yeah neither is Getty.
2: <laughs> no not at all.
0: Anything else about season two as a whole is just sort of like it's the sky season,
2: I guess. I like in general just how episodes were sort of like, um, you know, the bris, Bar Mitzvah, Independence Day, uh, Father's Day, Memorial Day.
1: But what's interesting about this show is that they kind of almost never get a sense of the passage of time, even though the seasons take place over the course of a summer. So you would think that like from the start of one season, to like you definitely get a sense of like character arts, but not necessarily of... Which I guess probably has a lot to do with the fact that they're shooting these in short periods of time and whatever, but like you don't see the grass change color or like anything to like note that marking of time, except I guess, you know, the holiday episodes.
0: It almost feels like the show was preemptively trying to not retread on itself, where it was like, well, we can only have one season of the country club because if we do it more than once we're going to tell the same stories which I don't think that's true
2: no I think you could have had like the same it would have been funny if the the season two there was also like Bar Mitzvah 2 Independence Day 2 like the Briss again you know like another Memorial Day like that, that could have been a kind of funny running thing that they did it just it feels like the
0: show was afraid for one reason or another to do the same sort of thing or to show the passage of time through a summer where I don't like i almost got the sense that like you know in season two where we open like basically right around new year's where david flies to paris and is there with sky then the sky's parents show up i was like is this whole season gonna take place in winter i mean i don't know if either of you guys watched either of you watch shameless on showtime
1: no, everybody's too mean to each other.
0: Because Seamus tells a story about, like, underprivileged people, like, an underprivileged family in Chicago, usually in winter, where life is more miserable. But then every once in a while, like, there'd be, like, a season where it's just, like, summer. And it's like, oh, like, this is what we're doing. And, like, it's just hot now. Um, and it feels like that's, like, a very winter show. And then all of a sudden, like, every two or three seasons or whatever, it'd be like, oh, it's summer now. And I don't watch the show anymore. I don't know if it's still doing that. Um, Carrie, your your co-host, Jordan's younger sister, is like the biggest Shameless fan that I've ever met. Uh, shout out Ally PC. But I just feel like this show, it was almost like, oh, this is going to be the winter season. But then it's not. It's just like a winter episode and a half, and then we're kind of back in Country Club-ish, but not also not really, not quite. I don't know. It just feels this weird, like, fear to just spend summer, summer, summer each season, even though that's what the show kind of is or should be or whatever maybe in my head
2: no in mine too I was kind of afraid I was a little like uh oh like in episode 1 of season 2 when it was like Paris I was like um are we jumping the shark already like is this whole season gonna be in Paris like what's going on here like where am I but it just felt to me like when they did, they do go back to Jersey in episode 2 but then when season 3 rolled around and we were in the city I was like oh this is sort of like the Paris effect happening where like the show has decided to leave the club for another location kind of thing so like it was weird like I actually had this I thought maybe they were doing it beginning of season two but it was just for an episode i I think they're trying to expand it you know what i mean like it's tough like maybe they just didn't want to pigeonhole themselves and do the idea i said was like yeah we don't want to do the fourth of july again we already did that like let's not repeat ourselves a bit like then they don't really get into any other sort of aspects of of summer really i know there's like a bachelor party but they go to like atlantic city like they do cool like there's fun episodes they get into like fun stuff and everything but I don't know I kind of I kind of I know where you're coming from I felt that too a little bit whereas like the beginning of the summer and the end of the summer not a lot of like not a lot to delineate you know one from the other
0: so then we are thrust into season three, and the two episodes that Amy Hackerling directs, Sandwich and A Little Business Proposition, was giving me flashbacks to both Loser, because we see Wheeler in class, but also weirdly to Swingers, because in Swingers, there was this like older, attractive couple who was like, hey, David, we want you to film us having sex, and Wheeler was involved. And then here, there's an older, attractive couple with his hot teacher, and they want him to be involved in the sex thing, too. And it's just like, you guys just did this.
2: Yeah, that turns out to be a whole different sex thing, though.
0: (laughs) It's a different sex thing, but I'm just like, maybe that's the the downside of watching three seasons in like four days or whatever. But I feel like it's like there was just an older couple trying to lure a younger person into their specific sex, not fetish, but like sex request, right? And then here again, it's the same kind of like, oh, we need your sperm because we're one of a baby, it's just like, well, you just did uh, Just It just felt very like very similar when there's not that many stories you're telling in, like, basically two and a
2: half seasons. My main takeaway from that episode was the uh, the turkey baster line, because that was also in Look Who's Talking. I, I mean, I liked what they were trying to go for, because I actually enjoyed the direction they were taking Wheeler. Like, as soon as he stopped smoking weed, he became like a genius kind of thing. Or he always was smart, but, like, he actually started applying himself and found he had a knack for literature and teaching his stuff, and I think they could have again they could have handled that a little better maybe it felt rushed i'm glad they tried to explore though the whole like surrogate like thing i just wish that they had take again taken more time with it and that it actually like panned out a lot better
1: but well when uh wheeler is talking to david about it one of them says it's not like a front for upper west side vampires and then the other one says no but that's a pretty good idea for a movie
2: oh
1: Oh,
0: cute little Hmm. vamps call out I did like that this that like there's a very there's an openness in this episode especially from the teacher about insemination and ovulation i was like oh that's like right in, we, in line mm-hmm. with amy heckerling and no other directors ever because <laughs> we talked about how that's something that you know happens to everyone right Kara? and no one talks about it except for amy heckerling and here she is again uh, in an episode where a woman's like i'm ovulating like let's get me knocked up or whatever and it's uh it's just a uh, it caught me not caught me off guard but like i was like oh we we just talked about this for like a handful of our movies
1: yeah and sam sandwich the episode sandwich somebody makes a midnight cowboy reference but back in the episode where they go where david and sky go to that party in new york city with the giant background dick as david is walking into that party he's talking about how he feels like he's in that movie so two midnight cowboy references in these amy heckerling directed episodes
0: this is also the part of the show where the Japanese are going to take over the club, which I think was sort of teased in season two, that there there's a threat that they're gonna buy the club and demolish it and use it for land. And so I thought that there was a great montage in the third episode where I wanna say it's Nash, but maybe it's multiple characters. I just wrote down Turning Japanese ish montage scene, which I feel like which is another great montage from Amy Hackerling about Maybe it was about Nash learning Japanese. I don't remember.
1: No, it's uh, he is learning from Barry is giving him and the golf pro lessons. Oh,
0: yes, yes, yes.
1: Cultural lessons about Japanese culture so that they can.
2: Bowing and drinking sake and stuff. Yes. I thought it was kind of funny because that's been Barry's entire vibe. The entire series is like he's always talking about how his his home is his dojo and like he wears kimonos at home and he's so into that culture and has you know adopted it that it was kind of funny like i liked the payoff that he kind of knew what he was talking about for a minute here and was helping them out
1: that montage is so funny and then it ends with the golf pro suddenly passing out hitting his head on the table and falling on the floor it just cuts there and that's the end
0: of the episode made me laugh Which is kind of a a little bit of a, not a flashback, but like a throwback or something to uh, Barry falling out of the car on that Bachelor Party episode and ending up in the hospital with a concussion and then trying to find david copperfield in atlantic city in the second episode in, in sandwich and sandwich is about where sam uh begins to open the restaurant the sandwich the deli or whatever with the help of his boss from the irs I, there was a great scene i thought like a little again not really montage but like a little quick cutting like tension building where david is waiting for 345 to hand in or to go talk to his boss about like watching his reel and there, there was a real sense of tension like i feel like maybe because i was paying more attention to the directing in this episode but i feel like there were flur she is in her episodes that we didn't really see in other episodes
1: so he's gonna give his boss his director's reel and as he's like writing down the word director he pauses in the middle of it and then like cuts up to a, uh one of those like felix clocks with the tail ticking back and forth and it's just the the directing of that scene in particular i think is so brilliant and really does build that tension so effectively
0: and I loved it going from like the Felix the Cat clock to another clock to a VCR blinking zero to like a different clock to one of those like calculator watches yep and like it was just it was so cool in the grand scheme of things it was a nothing moment like he could have just waited a minute and just you know handed it in but like it felt like this like very tense like bomb squad defusing a bomb it was just it was just masterfully done it actually reminds me completely off topic for a second mike i don't know if you watched i think i might have told you about this forever ago but there's a movie maybe from thailand called bad genius have you seen this uh no so bad genius is about uh four high schoolers who are trying to uh, scam the sats and it there's tension like this but like stretch for for a much longer time because it's like the count the clock counting down and stuff like that so uh compliment i think to amy hackerling that there's this whole movie that i love that this sort of reminded me of which is like this tension of a clock building or a clock ticking down or whatever but ultimately just so they can go talk to his asshole boss and try to get him to you know watch his reel but uh great 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 scene i think
2: well we mentioned like on a lot just that how she has a great film language and like she just those films and to me like it felt like she was pulling out of like a western here like a Sergio Leone moment where like it's like a showdown you know except he's having a showdown with the clock instead of a gunslinger so yeah it's just great to see how when she does that it comes from a learned place like it just we you know seen it before in, all of her, in her other work whether it's homage or, or borrowing or whatever, but like she knows how and when to use that kind of stuff so it doesn't take you out of anything and it does quite the opposite, it actually engages you more, so that's really cool, it's just like Great, great style.
1: Um, This is the episode where we get a bit of like a parental role reversal again. Not quite a body swap, but Judy shows up with her young lady friend at David's apartment to use their bathroom and he winds up having to kind of take care of her. And, and say the exact line that she said to him earlier in the series about getting the place cleaned up
0: uh, by the time he's home from work. Yeah, I love that. That also might have been, I think, in an Amy Hackerling episode. I think it's an episode where he wakes up just sleeping on the couch. And I think she, you know, she's just furious that he has left this place a mess. So a little bit of a, a twice twice come around, uh, both for the line and also within one of her episodes. So
1: Yeah, there's also a lot of like sexual harassment in her episodes, that I think, or at least in the last two, I, I wrote down under sandwich, sexual harassment. And then under the next one wrote down, ugh, pervy Dr. Ron. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what I meant by sexual harassment, but I know that it was there and I picked up on it a lot.
0: Oh, well, there's probably Dr. Ron uh, hitting on his patient while Misty looks on. And he's like, I just do this with all of them. I told dirty jokes to the, uh, to the men about what i don't even remember the joke but she's like oh i gotta remember that and then fucking dr ron just standing her up when he's like i'm just looking at your the only way that i'm not staying awake is by staring at your boobs like dr ron like come on man i also feel like maybe i mean like you know obviously wheeler is nervous of dr ron because he's a handsome rich successful doctor but like it's kind of dr ron that maybe like seals the deal that like wheeler's a guy for misty like
1: yeah i think so i mean i don't know
0: He's very similar to her a douchey lifeguard boyfriend from the first season.
1: I have complicated feelings about Misty, but she's very pretty.
0: She's very pretty. So Misty's got a crazy Jersey accent. I don't know what a real voice is like.
1: I know, which for some reason just makes her more hot. I don't understand it.
0: Do you think uh, Karen or Misty is prettier? I know that's not really a direct comparison because it's more like Karen versus Sky versus cutie wardrobe girl, but I feel like of the blondes with the crazy hair, crazy 80s hair, like in, in crazy in good ways, uh, a magnificent hair. I should say.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Misty really does it for me. I think it's the accent.
0: That's, you know, it's, it's great. I do love, though, in terms of the characterization, like, it's great, but I feel like there's a, a, a missed opportunity because she's in her red lifeguard outfit for so much of the show, whereas uh, Karen's outfit is just, like, wonderfully neon-colored leotards and, like, and leggings and stuff, and, like, that really, the wardrobe, like, Karen's wardrobe is on point
1: all of the wardrobe in this i think is so so good
0: anything else to say about red oaks
2: uh, other than nash is the best oh nash is gonna go work at mar-a-lago
1: there's several references that they make to uh, rudy giuliani who was attorney general or state's attorney of new york at that time and then at some point somebody's reading a magazine of donald trump on the cover and they show that
0: Trump's kind of a through line through a lot of this. But any other thoughts about Red Oaks before we have a quick sort of uh, recap of sorts of Amy Heckerling and this run of Cinemakers, or?
1: Yeah, not really. Um, I did watch a bunch of her other TV shows, though,
0: that I can talk about. Carrie Diaries. Well, she said another. you said another one or two that I already forget. Oh, Gossip Girl.
1: Yeah, well, I started with uh, the Fast Times TV show because they adapted that from the movie.
0: With its wild opening.
1: Oh my god, so wild. Um, there's only three quarters of one of the episodes that she directed that is online. It's called What is Life, uh, which was written by her, directed by her. And in that episode, Brad has an existential crisis while rehearsing for the school talent show. And then like tries to talk to his peers about death and whether they're afraid of death. And like why aren't they thinking about this stuff? And tries to talk to some of the teachers about it and like can't really have the conversation that he wants to have until uh, he gets stoned with Spicoli in his van. And Spicoli is like the only one who gets it. So it's the
0: same characters, but different actors?
1: Correct. Patrick Dempsey plays Damone, which is weird casting.
0: Is Brad's bud in it?
1: Brad's bud? I don't know. I didn't look at the full cast list. I'm not sure if anyone was cast as that.
0: Brad's bud is Nicolas Cage, so... Unfortunately.
1: But that was interesting. She worked on that TV show for a little while. You
0: said that that was important because that's where she met Mona May, right?
1: Yes, that is correct. And then there was
0: the uh,
1: show Baby Talk, which was adapted from the Look Who's Talking movies. Really? Yeah, I don't know how much she worked on that because she has a writing credit, but it's just based on characters created by and she's not listed as a producer or anything. So I don't know if she worked on that at all. And if so, how how much, but that was basically the gap between the second look who's talking movie and when she made Clueless. And then
0: did you watch that show? What?
1: The baby talk? No. did watch a few episodes of the clueless tv series uh which she was an executive producer on directed four episodes of and then has a created by written by credit for 62 episodes because it's based on her her script and she wrote four
0: episodes wow there was more crossover there in terms of actors right like dion stuck around and murray stuck around
1: Dion stuck around, Murray stuck around.
0: Wallace Sean, was he in
2: there?
1: Mm, yeah, but he plays. I mean, he's still Mr. Hall, but Mr. Hall is something else, I think. Uh, Twink Kaplan comes back as Miss Geist, but now Miss Geist is a guidance counselor. It's interesting. I didn't love it. And I know that Heckerling had a hard time working on that series because not only was she answering to Paramount, she was also having to answer to the TV. Network it was on UPN. No, it was on something else first, and then it moved to UPN. I don't remember. But I Could Never Be Your Woman, the movie in which. Michelle Pfeiffer plays a TV show producer is based a lot on her experience working on the t- Clueless TV series. So that's interesting.
0: Did that give you any more like insights into that or just sort of found the the, sort of the the irony and the frustrations because of that? Yeah,
1: more of that second thing that you said. And also like the costumes aren't quite as great. Mona May worked on the TV show too, but obviously much smaller budget, much quicker turnaround time, that sort of thing. So the costumes aren't great but there are some pieces I appreciate. And that was, so that was in 1990s that ran 1996 to 1999. And in that time she made loser in 1999, I think, and then made, I can never be your woman. And then directed one episode from the first season of the American version of the office in which Amy Adams plays a like purse saleswoman who comes into the office to sell her purses. Uh, and Michael refers to her as Pam 6.0, Uh, Pam is their receptionist so
0: which is not it's not wrong I mean maybe it's not funny but
1: (laughs) it's not wrong yeah yeah that's fair
0: Amy Adams is really really great and Jenna Fisher is good but Amy Adams is a goddess
1: so there's a lot of sexual harassment. Michael and Dwight both get very inappropriate with her. Pam feels relieved that there's somebody else to take the heat off of her. I found it very stressful the whole episode. And then that there were two episodes of Gossip Girl that she directed, an episode uh, or in season five and season six, which was. Interesting. I watched like maybe the first couple episodes of the first season of Gossip Girl, so I had like an idea of who most of the characters were, but I hadn't watched anything in between, and so I didn't really
0: have any idea what was going on. XOXO Gossip Girl.
1: Yeah, but in the season five episode that she directed she cast her daughter molly to play a bit part and also used a song by her band and also played the guy or also cast the guy the coke guy from vamps who is like the drummer of her band i don't know if he's also her drummer in real life but he plays a cop in that episode
0: gossip girl is leighton meester and blake lively right is that that show
1: That is correct, yes.
0: I know some things. I've never seen a minute of it, but my sister watched it, and people I was friends with at Ramapo watched it. There
1: you go. In the season six episode, though, uh, Michelle Trachtenberg was in it. I didn't realize. Apparently she had a recurring role on on that show, yeah. Um, and the whole time I was like watching it, like I have a distinct feeling like this is like Veronica Mars, but if she was rich and then it turns out that Kristen Bell actually does the voiceover on that show. So that's why. Really? Yeah. I was surprised. I didn't know that.
0: On the entire show? Yeah, apparently.
1: Yeah. But a lot of really, really wonderful shots of New York city. I don't know if they have like a separate crew that do all of those. Um, Cause that's part of the show. But if Heckerling directed those, they were great. So that's, Gossip Girl, also, I was thinking about how Gossip Girl, or whether Gossip Girl is a direct descendant of Clueless with that voiceover, the way that Clueless has that, which also... Is a perfect segue to talking about the Carrie Diaries, because much like Sex and the City... Well, actually, hold on, just real
2: real quick
0: before Mm -hmm. we get there. Is Veronica Marsh just gritty clueless? Hmm.
2: Because
0: there's voiceover there again, Mm -hmm. where instead of being uh, separated parents, but instead of having a wealthy, successful dad, she's got a great father, but struggling to make ends meet, sort of. Edgy backstory, date-raped and, you know, left for... Left for nothing in a at a party before the series starts. It's just like it's share if everything broke bad kind of.
1: The Carrie Diaries though also has a voiceover which they're actually pulling directly from Sex and the City. But is Sex and the City a direct descendant of Clueless? I was wondering about that also. I don't know. I didn't watch a ton of it, but I loved these episodes of The Carrie Diaries that I watched. I was really surprised because the episodes of Gossip Girl were kind of. And the episode of The Office were all kind of harrowing, and I was just kind of like, when is this going to be over? So that was a really nice refresh. An actress from Doctor Who showed up as Carrie's boss, which was really exciting, and I cried when I saw her, because... I wasn't expecting it, and she's not in a lot of stuff, so that was exciting.
0: I do want to point back to, on our Clueless episode, I sort of made the joke about how there is BC before share and Anno Domini in the year of our share, and, like, it's very true, like, that show directly or indirectly did impact probably everything that you're talking about, whether it's specifically, like, let's draw inspiration from that, or just, like, the fact that Clueless exists gives rise to a different kind of story and different kind of character and all that sort of stuff, so what became a joke, or what started as a joke, is actually uh, very inspiring. So. yeah good job
1: us in one of the episodes of the Carrie Diaries there is a scene that really reminded me of what we've seen from Heckerling a few times where a couple is making out or about to have sex or something and we actually see the woman thinking and we also see some of her perspective like we got a bit of that in Fast Times at Ridgemont High in that dugout scene we actually like see from her perspective looking at the ceiling I feel like in look who's talking there's like a little bit of that in there too and in this episode Carrie's father is making out with a woman on the couch and you see her face thinking and looking into the kitchen and then you see her perspective looking at dirty dishes in the sink from the couch as she's making out because she can't relax. And I just thought that was an interesting viewpoint that we don't see a lot. And then the third episode of the Carrie Diaries I talked about before, about one of the characters um thinking that he might have AIDS and that being a very moving episode, really. Good drama directing. Then there was an episode of Suburgatory, which is not available to stream anywhere, so I did not watch that. But Jeremy Sisto, who played Elton in Clueless, is on that show. But I hate him, so I'm glad I didn't have to watch that episode. And then there was an episode of a show called Rake, which starring Greg Kinnear, who was in Loser, was that Showtime? Maybe, probably it was a. It had been an Australian show that was adapt, adapted for the United States, and he just plays a, an asshole who's an asshole. To every, I don't like those kinds of shows, so I wrote down a lot of good people on this show, but I hate it, and that was the only note I took, and that's it. I'm done. It's a lot of TV, yeah.
0: Well, and we're done, really. So, Kara, thank you. I mean, so this run of Cinemakers was not always great. There were some real clunkers in here, uh, at least three of them. But it gave me reason to finally watch Red Oaks. It gave me reason to rewatch Fast Times and Clueless, and gave me one of my new favorite, unexpectedly favorite movies in Look Who's Talking. And also saw some other movies that I really liked, not on that level, but I can I can never be your woman in advance. So thank you for being so pro female director, pro Amy Heckerling, encouraging us to do this. And this was uh, this was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, this was. And now I have a favorite director. I've never had one before. And it's totally Amy Heckerling, and it makes so much sense. It all, it all makes sense.
0: So I guess the, the thing that we sort of been teasing, I think, last episode and this episode is that there's rumors that she ghost-directed part of or all of Night of the Roxbury, which I have never seen. Mm -hmm. which she did also produce she has like a full producer credit on that so we may cover that next week i'm not sure that's still tbd but this is in terms of you know how how high the highs were you know we've, we've talked about it sort of throughout as a kind of a bummer but like there should be more like anybody who makes fast times and clueless like let her do more stuff
2: yeah definitely want another amy heckerling movie i mean vamps was such a nice surprise like that was such a Good discovery. Yeah, I mean, like the the average here was was good. I feel like we did pretty. I mean, you know, I think I like Johnny dangerously a little more than the rest of the crowd. But but all in all, you know, really glad we did this. This has been a really good time, and yeah those you know, I mean, come on, between, like, Clueless, Fast Times, and Look Who's Talking, like, those are, that solidifies her in my mind as, like, a great director, you know? And, like, she did great work after that that just hasn't gotten recognized. And I just really hope, I really hope that uh, she gets another shot and gets a chance to make another movie, because I am there. I will, I have that ticket.
1: So, I have a question for both of you, which is, if you could pitch something for Amy Heckerling to make. It doesn't have to be a full story. I know I'm putting you on the spot. But, like, maybe a genre or,
2: like, a type
1: of movie. What would you have her do?
2: Musical. Oh, interesting. Okay. A sci-fi, definitely. How about a sci-fi musical? I think that sounds like a great idea.
0: I think just because, Kyra, I I just read this weekend that thing from new york times or the new yorker or whatever about how like she she always saw it as a musical so now i just got sort of a musical clueless on the brain so i want to see her do that
1: oh i'm happy to report that clueless the musical which just wrapped its run actually totally sold out so i'm very happy that like it was a success
0: i would also like to see her do a documentary of some kind about new york
1: hmm yeah that would be great oh that was another thing that i watched She appears in a documentary called If These Knishes Could Talk, The Story of the New York Accent, which is a documentary about the New York accent, which I had seen before and apparently completely erased from my brain because I started watching it and was like, oh, no, I've seen this. Interesting. But it's interesting. I mean, it's like on a technical level, not a great documentary, but it's an interesting subject matter. And I would love to see her get behind the wheel on a dock. That'd be cool.
0: You know, Mike, I was thinking about comparing Amy Heckling to our two other directors we've done full runs of. I would say the average not as high as Christopher Nolan, but we also knew exactly what we we're getting into with him from start to finish. That all three of us had seen all of his movies, except I don't think Chris had seen Dunkirk. But for the most part, we've all seen all of his movies. I would say the average was about on par with Soderbergh, right? Like, yeah, just because of his sheer
2: volume of Soderbergh.
0: Yes, Soderbergh had more clunkers, but you know, still like a handful of, like, perfect movies, and then also a bunch of stuff that I'd never want to see again or think about again. But I also think we kind of, in a way developed a structure and again not that this podcast needs any more rules but sort of alternating between like directors where i haven't seen maybe this is just for me i don't know but director alternating between directors where like i've seen like maybe half of it but not all of it and then directors that we've seen all of it and then again here this is sort of a mixed bag and the next i don't know who we're doing next we've talked about maybe doing tarantino maybe doing the wachowskis but both of those people or all three of those people i've seen all their movies but i kind of think there's like a there's value in like sort of staggering between like seeing things for the first time and then going deep on stuff that like we know that we love you know what I mean so Amy Heckerling I think like Soderbergh it was like a oh there's stuff that we know that we love but it's also like I've literally never heard of Vance I don't know what that is
2: yeah, I'd love to discover more movies and see more movies I haven't seen, see more movies for the first time from, from directors that I love, you know, like discover movies from from directors that I'm really into. But I, I think also what's, what's kind of, I don't know, for me, what I liked about this is that we sort of sh- broke that rule that we, you know, forged early on where we were like, we're only going to do auteurs from a certain year uh, forward. And, uh, you know, this just opens like the door, I hope you're in agreement that now maybe the doors. Just wide open, and we're just going to do aud tours from any time throughout history. You know, like we don't necessarily need to do m- modern odd tours, but maybe we'll do you know lots of films from the from the '60s one day or, or the '50s. Who knows? Just you know that opens the door for so much more variety uh, in general. So yeah, I'm I'm excited.
0: Well, outside of the fact of whether or not we do Night of the Roxbury next, our next one-off director has been selected. It's I don't know how to say this kind of without laughing. It's one of my friends who has made two movies. He's made two horror movies. Uh, it's my friend Matt Stewart's who has made a movie called Rewind and a movie called Tonight She Comes. They're both horror movies. Mike and I are going to do this I think solo bolo watch the two talk about the two and then we're going to have Matt on and sort of interview him about making movies making these movies ideas what's coming next what's well, actually kind of cool because I fo- I'm friends with him and I follow him on Twitter and I'm friends with him on Facebook some horror blog just picked up like 10 movies to or 10 either underseen movies in 2018 or 10 movies to watch for in 2019 and number one was *Night She Comes so he's kind of hopefully theoretically because he's a great guy an up and coming director he's only made the two so far so we're going to do the are uh, you all compare contrast tonight she comes is gross like it is real gross
1: gross in what way because i feel like that could go in several different directions
0: there's a lot of blood there's also a lot of like blood like female blood menstrual blood you mean okay yes uh the old aunt flow <laughs> the hallway
2: from the shining is that what we're talking about here yes
0: <laughs> it's my favorite gif I only saw it once because I saw Rewind like I watched Rewind twice on the same night and I was like oh shit I love this but this is so weird and cool I love that but Tonight She Comes I was like oh my god like when is this movie going to be over not because I didn't like it but I was just like it was uncomfortable
2: endurance test kind of thing I've only I've seen the first movie I, I liked it it's it's pretty cool I'm excited to to talk to him and, and to see Tonight She Comes because it was on my list last October for Halloween and I didn't get around to it and I didn't know he made it so that's really that was kind of of. of a cool surprise because I'd heard this movie so this is going to be cool and this also is just like you know we're not doing someone everybody knows then maybe you know we can create some awareness through our show or something but like yeah this is just in line with opening the doors just giving you know people a, a look at people's work you may not consider or hear or know about or something and yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. So, I was even
0: saying to him I was just like Soderbergh, Fede Alvarez, Christopher Nolan, the RKSS, Amy Hackerling, Matt Stewarts. So it's like, well, okay, but you know, it's uh, it's cool. Like he's a great dude. I'm looking forward to talking to him about these movies. He's not a household name. We're not a household name, but uh, a great, you know, pairing of the minds and maybe we'll all explode in popularity because of this episode. So, who knows. Sometime later this year, I look for that. Good luck with that. Well, thank you. But in the meantime, uh, check out Wistful Thinking. Check out the Tom Tom Club. Mike and I are doing Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise podcasts. Check out Too Fast, Too Forever. Check out Third Time's a Charm. Check out all 24 shows or whatever at cageclub.me. Go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email cinemakers at cageclub.me. We will read it on our Matt Stewart's episode, if not our Neither Roxbury episode, if that happens. Patreon.com slash Cage Club. Support us. Choose who we do next. That's a cool way to do that. And uh, again, Kara, just thank you for the Amy Hackerling run.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. This was very fun.
0: And I also do love how, like, pretty much every episode of Wistful Thinking, since we started recording this, you have mentioned Amy Hackerling in one way or the other, so we have forever changed your brain chemistry, I think, uh, to infuse more Amy Hackerling into it. I'm Joey Lewandowski.
2: I'm Mike Manzi.
1: And I'm Cara Gayle O'Regan.
0: And we'll see you next time, whenever it is, for whatever it is, right here on Cinemakers.